is Terry Bradshaw, quarterback, Pittsburgh Steelers. Touched by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's ABC's Monday Night Baseball, live from Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. He's fading, looking, looking, looking. He's under the gun. He's fired. He throws. Major League Baseball. And this is Mel Well, it's that time of week again, everybody, for the Past Our Prime podcast. Very happy to once again have the Hoffman brothers here with me, <laughs> Billy and Mark, Bill Mahoney and, and Mark Hoffman. How you guys been doing? I'm doing great, but you know, Bill was such a brat as a little brother, man. I, I was to, that you I know that to... that hyphen Hoffman Mahoney thing, <laughs> yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. I had to beat him down he a did. lot. He did. He... You guys are kind of like uh, uh, Devito and Schwarzenegger. Exactly. <laughs> I'll let you. Des- wait, wait, I'll yeah. let you decide who's who. <laughs> who's who? I think we know who I am. <laughs> Loved you, Taxi. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we, won't, we won't name names, but you were great and throw mama from the train. I'll be back. That's more than <laughs> Oh, God. Um, so yeah, as, uh, as we uh, do here on the Past Our Prime podcast, we go back and we look at sports from 50 years ago through the prism of old issues of Sports Illustrated uh, one week at a time. And we've had great fun so far with some great guests in our first couple months. Um, Larry Zonka and Lee Steinberg, um, Mark Cram Jr., Larry Farmer. They've all been sensational. Getting a lot of good feedback on it, too. Good. I mean, I really, to me, so far, the Bob Thomas stories about Walter Payton and then the Larry Farmer stories are just, and, and they're so animated that when you, when you listen to them back, you go, God, those guys are fun. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's always when there's a surprise. Like, you know, when I threw out that Mannix trivia, I had no idea that, you know, Larry Farmer's folks, that was their favorite show when they actually got to go on the set. That caught me completely off guard. Course, and right. that's what makes it so great. Absolutely, right? You don't want to ask questions that you know the answers to. Exactly. You know, We're not lawyers here. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, so this issue, it seems like it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, UCLA wins seven national titles in a row. And we're going to continue to talk about when they lose games. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> they, they lost. Yeah. They lost like three games yeah. in a span of four years yeah. or so. And we're going to talk about two of them because mm. the cover of this week's Sports Illustrated it's called UCLA's Lost Weekend because they didn't lose one game; they lost two games in a row. It's it's truly fifty years later, shocking. shocking. Still, yes. Um, of course, they lost to Notre Dame. Back uh, last month, and that's when we had Coach Farmer on. And this week, they went up to Oregon, and they lost at Oregon State, and then they lost at Oregon. And on the cover is Oregon's center, Gerald Willett, getting a rebound in between um, a couple of Bruins guys. and um, Including that Walton dude. I don't know what happened. Yeah, he didn't do much. He didn't amount to much. So uh, we will be talking with that 
center from the Oregon Ducks, Gerald Willett, momentarily as we uh, relive what has to be the greatest moment of his basketball career. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about that. This guy has the best moment maybe of his professional amateur life on the cover of Sports Illustrated. How how phenomenal is that? You know, it's it's etched in stone for forever. Because that, it, I wouldn't have known who Gerald Willett is, but there he is right there on the cover. So And how much does it, that, you know, that means so much to him? Because Bill Walton, Bill Walton, he went to Portland, went to Boston. He ended up being on Sports Illustrated a bunch of other times, obviously with UCLA. Willett, one shot, man. Yeah. And so every time you go somewhere with kids, grandkids, you go, yeah, that's that's your grandpa. That's right? just so cool. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be talking to him um, momentarily. But um, let's start first with um, the scorecard portion of the uh, magazine. Um, Mark, you got anything um that jumps out at you? Uh, I got a couple things that jump out at me here. Um, I thought that were really interesting, the Larry Luper story, who Crosby Field was the Cincinnati Reds' home before Riverfront Stadium, before Great America Ballpark. It was this old ballpark <clears throat> that got torn down like around 71, and he took a part of that and moved it over to his Kentucky farm. And he So before there was Field of Dreams, before there was that Iowa baseball diamond. There was this guy in Kentucky that had a bit of Crosby Field, you know, in his in his backyard. And if you build it, they didn't come no, because I've never heard of it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, and he did. I mean, if you look at it, he he bought the fences, seats, the advertising. He bought the manager was Bernie Tebbets. He bought the dugout where there was a little hole back there. They found out that the manager smoked and blew the smoke through there. This wasn't oh, wow. just one mm-hmm. thing. He bought everything. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then, as, shockingly enough, a guy came in and bought it from him and bulls- bulldozed it over. <laughs> no way. Yeah, bulldozed yeah. it over. Yeah, in the 80s, it was gone. So that'd be kind of neat. You go in your backyard. Now, let's go play some baseball. And, you know, you got Absolutely. Yeah. Like wiffle ball, right? right? would be awesome. I like this smaller smaller park there well if you think about it maybe when the a's eventually uh, eventually are out of oakland you might be able to get some of that coliseum you can yeah. you know scott yeah. you can build it here in pasadena i could get some of their plumbing issues <laughs> and, and take it back to my my house back east there that, you go. Uh, could use some help right about now um i i like this one um because it, it it talks about uh, tommy smith of the indians broke his arm in the off season playing basketball and two of his teammates, Buddy Bell and Frank Duffy also uh, got ankle injuries playing hoops. Um, and I believe either the year before, maybe the same, same year, John Reeves, who was a quarterback in the, uh, in the NFL and Brad Van Pelt, a linebacker, both had uh, big injuries playing basketball. So baseball used to have clauses saying, mm-hmm. if you guys did this, you know, and then they got rid of those clauses and everyone was just up in arms because these guys are getting hurt. Of course, now they have those clauses. You can't, you know, cross the street anymore without um, – because wasn't that the whole Jeff Kent um, controversy yeah, when, the he got, when he got yeah. hurt? Right. Yeah. right? And and they tried to hide what he was doing. Yeah. But basically, yeah. I think he was riding a motorcycle yeah. and, and he crashed it and he got hurt. And um, didn't, didn't Tatis do the same thing with the Padres? 
He was. He was. That's right. And he he broke was, his wrist and tried to cover it and say, "No, it's right, working out." Because yeah. he did it on a on a golf cart or yeah, something like that. Yeah. He crashed a golf cart. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see Otani's contract because I'd love to see all the little clauses. You can't you can't cross the street between five and seven p.m. because there might be extra yep. traffic there right, or something right. like that. So there's probably these extra cautious clauses oh, in there. Sure. And by the way, I made that up. So don't start all of a sudden saying, "Really, Otani can't cross the street between five and seven? <laughs> so yeah. you know. But it's I'm, I'm just saying the there, yeah. there's probably these Good little clauses job, in there just to make sure that you know the athlete does, if you're going to hurt yourself hurt yourself doing the sport you're getting paid for here's one for you how many we've all been to spring training we've all seen balls go over the fence right and we and we pick them up well uh poor fred spiller he was found guilty of petty larceny for keeping a ball that was hit over a fence in an intra-city game in wichita kansas okay so he's fined a hundred dollars or he could have been fined a hundred dollars or the judge said you can shag balls over at the little little league. He said no, and then he took him to court, and the court cost would have been over three hundred dollars. So I think he eventually ended up paying a hundred dollars. So think about that. You catch a ball, you get arrested. Right. Uh, right, because you keep the ball that's hit towards your truck yes. or something like that. You know, one day in spring training out in Arizona, uh, out in the they're doing batting practice before the game, long before the game. The ball goes over the fence. I walked over and picked it up, and this guy runs over and goes, drop it! And so I freeze. He goes, you can't touch that ball. So I don't know, maybe in Arizona they still arrest you, but this poor Fred Spiller, man. Right. And and the funny thing was, you think that, oh, go shack some balls. Yeah. That sounds fun, yeah. Even right? more fun. But his lawyer said uh, something to, to the effect of, hey, we didn't do anything wrong, yeah. and now you're trying to make a clown out of him, <laughs> having him go shag balls. So... But- um, Fred wasn't having uh, any of that. Couldn't he have just stolen another ball when he shagged it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> then he goes, the, right? Then, then that's execution well, you know, attention. Yeah, he's I, done. I might get in trouble here because I, I can't I remember where my cameraman was, but 1984, we were in the Tigers Clubhouse when they were in Anaheim, and we stole a couple balls that had autographs on you them. You son yes. of a bitch. So... I could be a wanted man. I'm out of here. Excuse yes. me. Excuse America's me. most wanted. There's me. LAPD? Yeah, yeah it's Bill. <laughs> no, Detroit PD. Detroit, <laughs> okay. Eddie Murphy, then. Yeah. Oh, they, man. Um, uh, here we go. True confessions. Yes, yes, yes. I have you the ball still son somewhere. Of a... Hey, they won the World Series that year. It's probably got some value. Yeah. Um, what I love is the they said it, you know, section. Yep, you know, yep. And Bill Stone, yeah. <laughs> who was the Montreal Expos pitcher, on why he did not use an agent to negotiate his contract, he said, quote, you don't need a lawyer to tell the club you had a lousy year. <laughs> so true. So true. Now, I bet you Mr. Stoneman did not um, keep that same way of thinking no. once he became the general manager no, of no. Angels. Yes. You had a lousy year. <laughs> no, I, I can see that. I, I, I get, uh, yeah, Max Scherzer going in. You know, I was hurt most of last year. How about I give you $10 million back? You know, that's just not happening. <laughs> right? yeah. Hey, right? Bill, I will say Bill Stoneman was the GM when the Angels won yeah. the World Series. So he's got that going for him. Yeah. Yeah. Super nice guy. Well, like I said earlier, um, we seem to be focusing a lot on UCLA losses because they happened so infrequently back there. But, uh, yeah, ambushed on the Oregon Trail, not since 1966, two years before yours truly was born, had UCLA lost consecutive games. Um, but as they uh, said in the magazine, when UCLA loses one game, it's a big deal. But to lose two in a row, unheard of. Their 88-game winning streak snapped at Notre Dame back in January. And now, at this point, this was the weird thing. Because so few teams went to the uh, mm-hmm. NCAA tournament, 
they were in danger of not only not repeating as champions for the eighth straight year, but not even making the tournament. And that's really weird when you're 18 and three to think, yeah, right. you might not make the tournament. Right, right. As it turns out, I think they ended up having to play for the conference title against USC. It was kind of like a they, they would have gone at that point anyway because I don't think they lost another game. They didn't. No. But uh, they ended up playing SC at the sports arena and killing them. So they did. They did make the tournament, but. Well, um, what I love though is the, the the page where they have the ambush on the Oregon Trail, and it's like a, the end zone point of view, and you can see the crowd completely behind the players, and it's so neat because this is such a 1974 crowd looking at the hair and the styles of people, because the crowd dominates that 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 scene almost more so than the players, and uh, uh, it's a lot of bad hair and a lot of bad clothes. But I thought this was great. The senior Greg Lee, his he he was not starting um, anymore. I think he was a starter and then wasn't. Tommy a starter. Curtis, I think, took over. Yeah. And uh, he he suggested that it was not the it was the people who weren't playing that might be causing this. So in other words, he was kind of blaming the coaching. <laughs> yeah, he said they were playing better when I was in the lineup. Yeah, I'm surprised Just, Wooden allowed that to be right? said, or at least let allowed, allowed that to get out. Well, yeah. imagine if you had social media back then. Oh, it was like you know, yeah. Wooden trouble, you know. Players rebelling, you know. But you know that to me, the crazy part: UCLA obviously lost the two games eight years prior. They lost two straight games. It was once again against Oregon mm -hmm. and Oregon State. Well, just, it's just a, it's crazy. a tough place to play. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. Really, it's small court. The yeah. fans are right on top of the court. Has anyone been picture. there? Have any of us ever been to a, a game there? Have you? No. Okay. And I don't want the court they have now because the court they have in Eugene now is so blinding. It's like the trees on the court, and you don't know where the court is. And when okay. the trees begin, it's just. It's just like I get a headache just looking at the court. The the Ducks were a were a great team. Mm -hmm. They really were. Um, they came at you defensively over and over and mm -hmm. over again. And a, a, an opposing coach said of them, "They're like a squad of kamikazes." And Oregon coach Dick Harder adopted the term the kamikaze kids. Yep. That they uh, they played this relentless, rough style. You you. When you played them, you were going to be battered and bruised. You may beat them, but you were going to know you were in, in, in a fight. So, um, in fact, a year earlier, when the Bruins were in Eugene, a fan ran onto the court, Billy. And kicked Bill Walton. <laughs> yes. I mean, in a game. <laughs> you know, Bill and I have this thing where we'll go, hey, I give for a dollar fifty, you know, go climb up that flagpole or you know, go do something like you'll Crazy. never do. Yeah. So that's probably what happened. Some guy in the crowd said, Hey, I'll give you a buck if you go run and kick uh, Walton in the shit. Yeah, that's right. And he had enough beers. Yeah, he had enough beers. He said, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's all mine. Uh some guy, a sophomore named Bruce Codron, comes out on fire in this game. Yeah. He hits his uh, eight of his first nine shots, finishes with 24 points. Oregon led by nine with 643 and went into what was called back then a four corners Stall. offense. They stalled. Mm -hmm. Dean Smith was famous for this at North Carolina. And um, they would hold on for a 56-51 win. The floor was crazy. Now, now we see people rush the floor yeah. all the time. Right. It can be a... Uh, a basically a nothing game, um, and that happens. But back then, but what what's so amazing is the Ducks the week before had lost by eighteen at UCLA, and the night before, and again remember back then at the Pac eight you played Friday and Saturday night. You didn't have these days off, and that Friday night they'd lost to USC by fifteen. So these two games they had lost to come back and then to beat 
UCLA the way they did yeah. was pretty remarkable. Yeah. And also because I think looking back, Oregon had lost like five in a row and they averaged points by 13. So for them to actually come in and then be able to beat UCLA was even more of a shock. Not the fact that they beat them wasn't a shock. The fact they had come in on a losing streak and not looking that good. Codron said afterwards, when you see those UCLA players, you think they are gods. Then you play them and you know they are people like the rest of us. So that comes back to what we had talked about with Digger Phelps when he had his team practice cutting down the nets mm. uh, in, in, a, in, in, in hopes that his yeah. team would, would beat UCLA because you had to convince your players mm. first off that you could do it before you mm -hmm. could do it. You know what I mean? If they came in there thinking, we can't beat these guys, you're in trouble. So you're right. Having lost these games in a row, yeah. having been blown out yeah. by UCLA, and then coming and, and winning the rematch is, is pretty unbelievable. I mean, a lot of times, you were, you were just saying it, a lot of times these teams come in against higher-ranked opponents, and they're already lost. They walk in and go, look how tall they are. Look at, look at all this. Oregon didn't do that. No. They looked at UCLA and thought, oh, we beat this team. You know, in order to beat UCLA back in the day, it took a collective effort. All you, you, you had to get it from everyone. Like I mentioned earlier, Bruce Codron comes out um, and just is on fire. Hits eight of nine shots, finishes with 24 points. Um, they had a great player in Ron Lee, and then they did it collectively. The Kamikaze kids were known for their toughness and their defense, and the center of that joins us now Gerald Willett, um, the center who went up against All-American Bill Walton. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us today on the Past Our Prime podcast. Sure, I'm glad to be here. How are you folks doing today? We're Fantastic. doing just great. 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 Yes, I have Bill and uh, Mark here as well. And like I mentioned earlier, or, or Bill did, uh, Mark is a big UCLA fan and, and grad, um, yeah. and you really... Uh, put a, a, a dent in his childhood. So we, we can thank you for that, Jeremy. <laughs> I hope it didn't traumatize you too much. too much. Actually, to be honest, the worst one was, and it was a few years later, Oregon came down to Poly Pavilion and they oh, beat with UCLA. Ballard, yes. Yeah, 65 to 45. Oh, and we were just stunned. No one came into our house, not only beat us, but beat us by 20 points. It was a beat down by the Ducks. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you first off, Gerald, you know, 50 years later, and I have to think there are a lot of things about that night that you remember, but is there one thing that stands out? I think it was the vulnerability of the Bruins. They did not seem to be uh, their normal selves that night. They didn't seem to be unconquerable. Fact is, they seemed scared. They seemed scared the second they came in, and we started the game. And they just—I even made a comment to Bill about how scared they were, and we were going to beat them. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you couldn't come into Matt Court and play scared. It just didn't work. There too much, too much pressure there. Did losing to to you uh, to the Oregon State the night before help you guys? Did that maybe ruin their psyche? I'm. I I'm sure it had something to do with it because they came in at the start of that game. And I know Matt Court was a little intimidating, but they literally, uh, they literally seemed to be scared. How could, how could you sense that? Oh, I could see the first time we were at the free throw line, I was next to Bill and mm -hmm. he was shaking. He was that scared. I could see him shaking. I'd never seen him shake before. 
you know, you, that's, that's when I made the comment because I thought, wow, you are really scared. I'd seen other people come into Matt Court, especially freshmen from other places, and they were scared. They'd actually shake. Like once, in a while, once in a while, our freshmen would be scared and shaking, <laughs> and I'd have to look at them and yell at them to breathe, and then they'd take a big breath and realize that they'd been holding their breath. What was it about your home court that would do that to opposing teams? Oh, I think it was a combination of the way we played and our fans. I think our fan base – I think Matt – Matt Court was the highest rated gym in history. I read that somewhere one time that we were rated at a six point uh, differential just because of Matt Court. Weren't the fans like right on top of the court? I mean, it was like just right on, the Yeah, right on top. The, the student bleachers were probably 18 inches from the edge of the court. Wow. I mean, you had enough to put your feet down, but. You run by, and I know, I know. Once in a while, they'd let the opposing team run around their feet. They'd be trying to stick their feet out there. And I think they moved the bleachers back just a little bit one year, but I don't remember which year that was. Well, we were we were talking about the year before that a fan ran out on the court and kicked Bill Walton. So I mean, it seems like that place is a a little tougher place to play. Yeah, you didn't want to get off the court. The fans had a tendency to grab people. I know. I I actually <laughs> witnessed one time. I think they were pinching Bill when I ran by. <laughs> I think I yelled, "Let him go!" Because one guy had his arm hooked, and the other, I think it was a girl, was pinching his leg. I saw <laughs> saw him actually pinching him. <laughs> you know, you you held what many people say is the greatest college basketball player of all time, Bill Walton, to just eleven points. How did you as a team and you in particular go into that game with a game plan and how did you execute it? Ooh, uh, I was awful small for a center in those days. And I'd been practicing uh, defense in a different way of actually playing defense before my man got the ball because it was too late. Uh, everybody was so much bigger and heavier than me that I could not let them post up, get the ball. They were just scoring too easy. So. Um, I was playing defense a little different than everybody by denying the ball, serious denial. Sometimes I'd front, sometimes I'd three quarters, sometimes I'd mix it up so much that uh, he couldn't really put his weight on and post on me really easy, or I'd jump around in front. And what really allowed us to do that is that my teammates were really helping on the weak side. They would, uh, mm -hmm. they'd be ready for the lob, and we'd go after that first one, and then they'd quit. We knew we had to stop that first lob. And then they quit throwing the thing. And I could get away with a quick front and then jump back around behind. And I was quicker than most of the centers. So uh, that's the way I played most people. I just had to play a little harder when I played Bill. You you were six eight and a half, right? So you had to use your quickness, right? Yeah, I was six eight and a half and oh gosh, I started I started as a sophomore at about two fifteen. But I'd ended that first season at 205. I think by my senior year, I was in in the season at about 215 was all. I was going to so, ask yeah, you. I was kind of lightweight, too. I was going to ask you in that game, you guys were up by six at halftime, but UCLA actually took the lead in the second half. Mm -hmm. At any point, did you worry that you, now that UCLA had taken this lead, that now it was all going to go south for you guys? Oh, that probably crossed my mind but I shoved it right back out and 
went right back to executing what we were doing before, which is throwing over the top of that zone and heading down the floor as fast as we could before the rest of their team got there. Because that's what really made them so good with that zone. They could throw Bill back there all by himself, and he'd guard the basket. And the other four guys would be up on the front court uh, pressing the crud out of how many ever guys. You couldn't, you know, you got too crowded up there to put more than three guys so their press seemed to work against everybody but once we once we threw over the top and started going and Oregon State the night before had beat them by Paul Miller shooting from that wing spot and we had a guy Bruce Coldren who could do the same thing so Harder told us we were going over the top and going down the floor I got to actually kind of be the point guard I promised him I wouldn't take more than one or two dribbles and I'd get rid of the ball though (laughs) which I did I was throwing it down the court trying to put the pressure on Walton you know, uh, one of the heroes of that game was Bruce Codron, and man, he picked a hell of a game to catch fire, didn't he? Didn't he? Yeah, that was, uh, I won't say by far Bruce's best game, but it was his biggest impact game. He had a couple other games that were good, but uh, that one, he hit the shots when we needed him, and we would have never won that game without Bruce. We just We just didn't have that many shooters on the team. We didn't have somebody we could replace him with. Now, now talking about the the cover of the Sports Illustrated, a lot of people expected it to be Codron, but then surprisingly, it was you. What was your first reaction when you saw your picture on the SI? Let me, uh, they eulogized Bruce last week at uh, the Arizona game. Uh, uh, Let's make sure we get his name right. It's Coldren. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Thank you. Just because I think his wife might listen. No, that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. We knew that one of us was on the cover, and we all just knew it was Bruce, including myself. I was just sure it was him. After hitting 12 of, what was it, 12 of 14? 12 of 14. 15, 12 of 14? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just figured that, you know, uh, America was watching basketball. What they were selling in basketball at the time was the offensive uh, prowess of people, finesse basketball. And that really wasn't us. And I thought they'd put Bruce on the cover just because of that. I didn't think they'd put a defensive guy on the cover. <laughs> I just just never entered my mind. Now, what did you think of your picture? I mean, did you go, wow, that's a great pose of me holding the ball up high like that? But then I my I, left Yes. But then my left arm's covering half my face. I mean, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I thought, what a shot for posterity. There I am in the middle of a great game. And I got my arm over my face. <laughs> and it was kind of fitting. It was, uh, I think they picked that on purpose. It was kind of uh, like we were the unknown people just coming in and beat. You see Bill and who was it? Uh, Turgovich? I think it's Turgovich. Yeah. Number 25. Yeah. Standing there kind of gawking at me. But uh, um, I think that's what they were trying to say was like, they got caught looking and watching instead of, you know, playing. It wasn't, I don't know that the picture was so much about me than it was about UCLA and how they were, have a tendency to just watch right then. Well, it's a great shot because of the look on all the players' faces and you just dominating the boards. It's got to make you feel good about that. Yeah, I just, I wish they'd have caught it at a peak jump. It looks like I'm about <laughs> two inches off the floor, and that was actually a big jump that I had grabbed. It was just coming down with it. So when I first yeah. uh, mentioned um, and and called you about being on the show, and I said, um, 
We're doing a podcast on the 50 days um, or 50 years later on the, you immediately knew the date of the issue <laughs> because you said to me, you said, oh, I've signed the cover of that issue so many times. The, it, it's arguably the biggest moment of your basketball life, and it is forever commemorated mm -hmm. by being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. How crazy is that? It's it's pretty exceptional. I get reminded, like you said, I get reminded of it every year, and I'm surprised people are still uh, interested in it. We'll get a new coach at Oregon, and every year, every time we get a new coach at Oregon, they invite down all the kamikaze kids trying to find out what the mystique it was about that team that people are still talking about and comparing teams that have better records than us and have done, done better than we did, why they're still comparing those teams to us. It was really, I don't know, none of those teams have had a Ronnie Lee either. <laughs> there's there's that helps. Serious, that helps. serious entertainment value there, yeah. I even like watching Ronnie Lee. Every once in a while, I find myself with my mouth open thinking, wow, I'd like to be able to do that. Now, once an Oregon Duck, always an Oregon Duck. Do you, as the years went by, would you always support the program? Would you always go to the games? Yeah, I go to games. Uh, I got hurt about 20 years ago. I had an electrical event. Uh, I had electricity run through my body for 15, 20 seconds. I was in water, so it was a serious event. Um, wow. It stopped me from doing really anything for 10, 10, 15 years. Just the last five years, I've been really been able to move my arms and talk without stuttering. And I don't stutter. I was just getting so many electrical shocks that I just could hardly talk. But I'm fine now, and I'll stay back on course because oh, uh, I'm God. going to games again and meeting the guys at different events. And, and, uh, I'm back socializing again, so I'm having fun living life oh, again. Good, oh, good. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, was, I was all folded up in a chair for a while, like, like Stephen Hawking. I, oh, I, okay. I, technically, I'm a spastic. I still have to be careful how I move. Uh, I, played, I played my Xbox playing Call of Duty because I can't be too physical, so I oh. tore my eye doing that. I had oh, to quit God. doing that. Um, I was spazzing my jaw and broke teeth. There's spasms like you wouldn't believe. Like I've, I, I got to get a tour rotator cup oh fixed because a muscle spasm in my shoulder just reaching for the dog food. I don't mean so, to. I don't mean to get personal. How did? Can you explain how that happened? Yeah, uh, I'm a property manager, so I have a lot of talent in all kinds of things. I installed a dishwasher for my mother that night before, and it was leaking the next day. Her significant other died. I was in a big hurry. I didn't turn the dishwasher off. My mom had a bunch of company coming. I popped the front off, started to tighten the valve, and my wrench hit the power. And my other hand was getting sprayed by the water. I didn't realize what a good connection I was in. And it, it lit me up for like 15, 20 seconds. My so mother wasn't sure what to do. You, you should have died. I should have died. Oh my! I God. think I didn't die because it shot me right out of my body. I was standing next to a guy watching the whole thing, so oh. it didn't even hurt. <laughs> wow. I felt hot at first, and then I, when it shot through my body, it just shot me right out of my body. I was standing there next to this guy watching the whole thing. Oh my goodness! So was that? Did yeah. you have a cardiac arrest, or did you actually have a heart attack? Uh, no, they say that your heart stops, but that's not true. It goes into I was hooked up to 110. My heart was buzzing at 110. Uh, the next thing I turned to this guy, I'd had another out-of-body experience when I was in Spain, 
got hit by lightning in a yeah. airplane, dove 32,000 feet, and this guy walked through the pilot door, and I was like, holy cow, I'm in shock, and he started... He gave me a life review in a little black box, and the next thing you know, I'm like, holy cow, what is going on here? Oh and it was the same guy. I hook up the electricity, it shoots me out, and I'm standing next to the same guy. I said, you know, in that life review, you showed how I was going to die. It wasn't like this. I said, you you and God lied to me, and that guy got so mad, I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you how mad he got. He reached down there because we're floating about three feet off the ground. He reached down there and socked me with his right hand, right hand. Right here, I had that mark on my neck and chest for almost two weeks where he whacked me. And I instantly shot back in my body. And I was in my body spinning around out of the kitchen, through the kitchen, through the dining room, into the living room, 25, 30 feet away and landed at, at my mother's feet, who'd been running up and down, screaming at the other people to come and get me unhooked from this thing. Oh, oh my God. My God. So did you that's the story. I, I, did you have to go to ICU? Literal that, out-of-body that, experience? That, yeah. Did yes, you have to go to ICU? Literal out-of-body experience. Were you put in I've ICU been very, People think I've had really bad luck, but, you know, it's taught me an amazing amount of things that uh, – when you die, you're going to be more alive than you are right now, guys. More wow. than that's, you are right now. Way that's one more of the most alive. amazing stories. Yeah, I mean, that's I, the last I like, thing I, wow. I expected to talk about you playing Bill Walton. Wow. <laughs> I'm like speechless. Sorry, that, Sorry that to makes digress. You, that makes me no, awesome. like, like nothing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a big event in my life. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and, but, and but, the third these... and, and the second time I was actually dead, the first time I had. Uh, uh, they cut me open trying to save me because my uh, sinuses were blowing my brain apart. I broke my nose into my face and wow. it scarred my sinuses. So that's, I'd had a couple out-of-body experiences with this same guy who I know when I die, I'll be, hi, how you doing? Where are we going? Yeah. Wow. Good to see you again. Oh, yeah. I am so I've even seen the Crystal City, wanted to go there, and they wouldn't let me. Said I, said I wasn't done cooking. Wow, <laughs> Gerald, that nice. is uh, wow. I, I, that really gives you an me back. They sent me back because I'm supposed to tell everybody. That I can't shut my mouth now. I, well, I have to tell everybody well, the, about how alive you're going to be when you die. You're wow. supposed to be on the past past our prime podcast to tell everybody. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly that's right. 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 Well, I think I'm coming into my second prime because you should have seen me 10, 15 years ago. Like I say, I was all folded up, sitting in a chair. Oh my God. It's interesting. It's karma because if we had done this podcast ten or fifteen years ago, you wouldn't be able to communicate. That's with us right. On the podcast. No, nah, I'd have turned you down, guys. I couldn't wow. have done it. I couldn't wow. have made. I couldn't have made a schedule, and made oh. the time. I, I maybe, maybe not. Probably not. And now you're fixing computers and getting on Zooms and doing it all. I'm doing it again. Doing it again. I had to this. almost re-educate myself. The only thing I didn't lose was my long-term memory. Some of it in the last, and I mean long-term, like I kind of wiped out about 20 years, all the people I met there for so, a period of time. I couldn't even remember their names. I couldn't oh remember anything. I couldn't hardly do Did anything. it come back or did you have to relearn it? Uh, both, yeah. both. It slowly came back and I was relearned. I was studying all kinds of stuff. I became a YouTuber. I was studying everything on, on YouTube. All you sound fantastic. Yeah. You so sound would, amazing. Would you say now you're what, like 75% back? What would you say you are now from before? I, all this? I, I say, uh, I say 60 six and a third because i weighed 240 when i got zapped and six months later i weighed 160. 
Uh, oh my, my god. god. I couldn't I couldn't swallow water for six months. I would have to trickle it down. They wow. told me to get my affairs in order. I wouldn't make it five years. They were being nice. They thought I was gonna die right away, I'm wow. sure. Oh my god. So well that took well, us that's, 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 that's a direction. Let's get anyway. back to the yeah. issue. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's one reason basketball <laughs> saved my life. We can get yeah. back to it because I was in such great shape. I know I know uh uh, even Stu Jackson, head of player personnel NBA, said that I was in better shape than anybody he'd ever seen at any level. And I just like to I like to be physical. And that's yeah. one of the reasons we won that game at the end of the games. That's why I wasn't too scared when they were jumped up on us. I knew that if we were close to almost anybody in the world, that we'd bite them at the end because we were in better shape. And in I knew I'd get buckets at the end of the game. And in 75, weren't you drafted by yeah. the Blazers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was. But – that was a plus minus thing too. Bill was playing for the Blazers and they were about to uh, oh, win man. a world championship. And Lenny Wilkins came to me because at first Lenny was kind of taking me along on the side and showing me how to be a, turning me into a three real fast mm -hmm. and showing me how I could take one dribble and dunk from the edge of the court, which I didn't even have a clue about. And the next, after three days, I, I thought I was going to make the team. I was sure of it the way Lenny was talking to me and uh, uh, the next thing you know he came up and said well there's people on the team that don't really want to play with you we can't really sign sign and trade you he goes you're going to have to play in Europe or somewhere for a while we'll hook you up with somebody and all of a sudden I thought all the, that one game that we're talking about probably did me in because I think I'd have signed with Portland right there if Walton would have played with me Oh, so I know he did not you beat like him? me at all. Why? Um, why? Because you beat him? You know, somebody that that knew Walton in Portland said that he told them that he'd been on the cover of Sports Illustrated a bunch, I want to say 13 times or some, uh, some amazing amount it was, and that that was the only time that he wasn't the star on the cover, and it was just kind of a bitter pill for him to swallow. That, And I don't blame him. Uh, you know, he was a great player. And so if you we, we were not ranked, we were not ranked in their category, really. Although we had good players. We had Valor. We had uh, we had we had good players. Yeah, you did. Now you had with with Walton. Did you guys talk during that game that you guys played? Was there any conversation between you two, good or bad? No, not really. I'd never talked in a game ever. I'd never said a word to I, I just didn't talk. I had a tendency to stare because I found out as a unintimidating sophomore that it was a little intimidating if I stood right there and just stared at people. I mean, not even blink. <laughs> <laughs> so you think if you were drafted by another team, not the Blazers, you might have st then made the NBA club? It's very, very possible. In fact, is when I came back from Spain after playing in Spanish years, I played for a coach, Aido Reneses, who became Madrid's big-time coach and ushered them in to play in NBA teams because I taught him defense and he taught me how to shoot. And I came back the same player I was with a shot, a good shot, and I was going to play. And I was just telling Portland, you don't sign me. I'm going somewhere else. So they were trying to kind of control that. So they were going to do a sign and trade deal with me and give me my choice of uh, it looked like Cleveland, Atlanta, Atlanta or uh, – um, Detroit. And, uh, I was, I was willing to do that. I liked Atlanta. 
and I, I, we were we were just discussing what we were going to, you know, signing bonus. We kind of knew what I was going to make, and we were discussing the signing bonus. And Fourth uh, of July hit, and I told him I'll talk to you on the fifth. On the Fourth of July, I was playing badminton and tore my left eye in half. <laughs> And that there went your NBA career then. That was that was that. Yeah, I lost oh. about a third of my vision. Oh my god! So I was okay. just instantly the second I knew I'd made it, I was done just done. that fast. You know, you mentioned that you go to Barcelona and play, and once again, your timing just a little bit unfortunate because in November of '75, uh, the dictator uh, Franco dies. And then you play that night, and that that was a crazy night. Uh, do you recall any of the events that took place that evening? Oh yeah, the place was in just about a riot. They were throwing <laughs> chairs on the floor. Um, the area of Barcelona wanted to secede from the rest of Spain for a long time, and when Franco died, they were talking about it, and the Basques were just going to do it. So the whole country is in turmoil, and. They had two types of police there. The um, the traffic police, which were usually about half drunk, and you could pay them off for whatever you did. You could we could speed around all we wanted to. We just paid them off. And uh, the the guardia had these little uh, plastic triangular hats and carried machine guns, and you didn't mess with them. Mm. And they uh, they were all over the floor. Fact is, the game that you're that night, the game that we were playing, they started chanting. Uh, uh, down with Franco and the Guardia, there's probably 10 of them. And there's usually only two of them in the building when we're playing a game. There's 10 of them that night. They walk out on the floor. Why? It's not a timeout, but we had just come back on the floor from a timeout for, while they're doing this chant. And the Guardia walks out there and starts waving their machine guns like they're going to mow everybody down. And I'm about five feet from the guy with the machine gun. Oh. All I could think was hit the floor and belly crawl out of there as fast as I could go and jumped over the concrete wall that was about three feet high and told the coach I was peeking over watching these guys saying, hey, I I'm here to play ball, but I'm not here for a gunfight, and I'm not coming out till those guys leave. I could, they could hardly get me on the floor afterwards, even after the Guardia went back to their corners. Gerald, you can't see this, but I'm looking at both Bill and Mark right now, and their mouths are both I, wide open I, in I, astonishment. I mean, you're like you know, a cat. You have nine yes, lives, and they used, I gosh. think, four or five of them. So you got four more lives. Oh yeah, I got a yeah, I got a few stories. I, I've been but, a very active person my whole life jumped off of everything from 60 foot cliffs we had to fight the rattlesnakes to do that but you know those are all from growing yeah, up well, in eastern that's oregon normal yeah yeah from growing <laughs> up in eastern oregon uh i think my grandparents i don't know if my grandparents ever told us no uh, to anything i think I, actually I, being a country person is important because i think if you were a city person you would have died one of those times i think oh i'm sure tough, i would have yeah being uh, from the country i think it makes you tough and yeah. I think that's why you survived. Yeah, I was uh, I was haying at 13. Oh, my I was, God. I was so tall, I was running around with the 15, 16-year-olds who all were haying. And we'd hay all day and then go uh, across the street from my grandparents. They lived in town, and and uh, the principal would turn on the lights, and we'd be playing ball at night. That's what, what made say? me tough, playing with a bunch of cowboys that were two, three years old. I mean, they just whipped my booty. <laughs> wow. Every night they whipped my butt, come out of there bloody. And 
I finally wow. grew up and got a little stronger and decided I was going to be the whooper instead of the whoopee. Good. <laughs> how, how, much Good. Of the, how much of all these situations that you've been through, how much have they changed you and made you a different person? Ooh. You know, uh, every one of those events has just brought me to where I'm at now. I, I felt invincible when I was young, and I feel invincible now. I, I'm... Uh, I think we're, that's what we don't understand, that we're all actually invincible. We are great beings, all of us. I and think you need to write a book and call it invincible. That's the fruition of all this, yeah. Are you, yeah, are, I should write about the time I've, two or three times I've been dead. It's a, yeah. it's, are are you a religious uh, person, Gerald? Ooh, spiritual. I wouldn't say exactly religion. Uh, I wouldn't say... I was a serious Christian for a while, but you could call me a Buddhist. I believe in all the ascended masters. I understand now that uh, every religion, to, I, I've backed up enough now that every religion looks exactly the same. Fact is, there's a book out by uh, a cardinal and a, uh, a Buddhist monk that parallels Buddhism and Christianity right down to the letter. Fact is, I think the six years that they say Jesus was lost, he was... The Indians from India don't think he was lost. He was over there uh, mm. uh, taking classes from the gurus over there. Mm. You the know, teachers, I, the sadas. I think you and Walton now would be best buds because yes. you're big time. Really he, he doesn't realize it now. Yeah. He, he came to Oregon, and I thought, you know, he he fit more in Oregon than I expected. I thought he doesn't know. I should have been on that team with him. We'd have had a great time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm so, very so, esoteric. So we do this. Uh, trivia segment called 50 50 on the show and it's i give you a 50 percent chance to answer a Ooh, question from, guess, yeah yeah and you get uh, from 50 years ago and this one will be really easy uh, at least i think okay true or false in 1974 50 years ago there was a young basketball player who was just starting i believe at north eugene high school Ooh, true or false got your answer Danny Ainge was a, yes. <laughs> I was going to say wow. before he was an executive, a player with the Celtics with BYU. Yes. Barney Holland. Yeah. Barney Holland was a buddy of mine at North Eugene coaching Danny. And I'd played against his older brother, uh, Doug. And uh, uh, Barney had me going over there during the summer teaching the kids. So I was the, uh, I'll tell you a real story. I was the one that should recruit Danny. And I told Hart of that because I knew him. I'd already known him for two or three years. And when he comes, he's talking to me and he's telling me he's going to come. He's like, what is his chances? I was like, oh, what, making the team or starting? <laughs> and he, he was a little offended. And uh, he goes, why don't you think I'll start? And I said, look at what we have. I said, you don't play enough defense right now. You come out of high school. I said, you don't play enough defense to barely make it on the court but a couple of minutes. But he goes, well, what would you do if I do? I said, you're either going to learn to play defense or you better go to BYU. And that's just oh. what I said because Frank, Frank Arnold who recruited me at Oregon, went to BYU, and I almost went to BYU because I liked Frank. And Belko had resigned, and we didn't know who was coming. And when they fingered uh, – Dick Harder, I kind of looked into it and thought, wow, I'd like to play for that guy. He did well at Penn, and that's how I got there. But I was So BYU gone. should be thanking you then. Yeah. Entire <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with being an Oregon duck, Gerald, but there are only a chosen few who are a kamikaze kid. I can't thank you enough for giving us your time. Um, 
we knew about some of these stories, <laughs> but we didn't know about uh, yes. uh, so many of the ones that. Well, but have... I, I didn't digress yeah. too much. No, you know. you know what? It's all about perspective, my friend, and and those those moments that you had in your life gave you perspective, and now you're able to pass that on to other people. And I can't thank you enough for sharing that because a lot of people would just. Uh, they just Fold stay up. in a, in, a in, in their in their comfort zone and call it quits, and that that's not inside you. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for having me and giving me a platform just to talk about my basketball experiences and life experiences, and and uh, hope your hope your podcast does as good as you guys seem to be doing because I've I've enjoyed it. Gerald, you're an amazing man. Yeah, we've really you're, enjoyed you're, you're it. You're amazing. Thanks, Gerald. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You too. Enjoyed it. So there you have it. I mean, um, when you do these kind of things, you have no idea, yeah. really, no. what you're getting into. A lot of these times for me, um, you're hearing of these people for mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, I was six years old when this happened, when, when they played the game. Uh, sorry, the, back, the game seems to have really taken a backseat yes. in this conversation. And these guys, I mean, everybody has a story. Everybody. But, yeah. What I'm saying is that you, Scott, when you came up with this idea, past our prime, it was like, well, okay, sounds good. But when you get you get guys back from that era, they want to talk mm -hmm. about what they've done. They want to rehash incidents. They right. want to go back. He, you, from Gerald right there, you could tell he enjoyed every part of it. Mind you, those stories were absolutely unbelievable but that's what i'm saying that's the exact reason he, why we started this he's gonna live to be like 145 years old I hope this so. is and eventually he'll be best friends with walton because yes, walton yes. will be 145 yes Boy, but, but we need that's what we need to do we need to get walton and them together yeah, i, was I really the think they would be buddies now. i was thinking the same thing one i wanted to find out what would he say to walton right now but i just you know i mean he was just you could tell walton and him are the same guys yeah yeah very spiritual they would be the very, same yeah. guys yeah, and, one and, and you know, there's something about, I mean, literally, they sh they have a shared experience yes. that nobody can relate to, really. They were on the court at the same time mm -hmm. battling each other when UCLA was in this midst of this unbelievable run. And there's, what, five guys that Walton went up against yeah. that beat him? Yeah, that's and, right. And, and Bill got the better of him more often than not. Don't get me wrong. But... But they Not can look each day. other in the eye mm -hmm. and, and know what they went through on the court. And then, you know, Bill's a different guy now, too, than he was. Right. We all are uh, back 50 years ago. I can't imagine that those two guys would not hit it off. Yeah. Wow. What a what an unbelievable story. Thank you, Gerald. I mean, he electrocuted himself. <laughs> And, and, lived, and, and lived and lived and, and I mean, an outer body doing a simple dishwasher his thing. His poor mother. Yes. Right. I, I, sitting I'm, there experiencing this as his son is going through this trauma. And then, you know, I mean, he's a, he's basically a patient for the yeah, next 15 right. years. Yeah, all folded up. And now here he is in his in his early 70s. And you said he's he thinks he's in the prime now because he got gypped out of so much time. Yeah. And here he is, you know, almost, uh, well, not, not a full recovery, but 66 and a third. <laughs> we, have, well, we have like two separate podcasts here. Gerald Willett, the yeah. basketball player, Gerald yeah. Willett, the survivor. And for this man to survive, not just that, but several other near-death experiences is just Phenomenal. unbelievable. Yeah. Phenomenal. Moving on. Uh, track and field, the weekly 
um, track and field article from Sports Illustrated. And this one had a different tone in that they were trying to find out if a professional track league could make it in the United States. And the question was, will pro track make it? And, and you know, really the, the, the me growing up, I was a big track fan every four years. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's the Olympics, and here's Edwin Moses, and here's Carl Lewis, and Bruce Jenner, Ben Johnson, yeah, Ben Johnson. Yeah. You know, and, and, but the, and then the next three years, I was like, oh, what are these guys doing for the next three years? <laughs> right. Um, so they tried to have it where they were, and, and they had like eleven thousand people come out to the Nassau Coliseum, and a guy named Ben Gipsho won two mm. races. He won one Friday, two Friday night, and another two on Saturday night down in Baltimore and he won $2,100, 500 for each race and then a hundred for setting a record. And they were really excited that this might become something, but there just wasn't enough. Um, they couldn't get all the, for that to, to work, you have to get all the great track right, stars. Right. And Dwight Stones, when they tried to get him was quoted as saying, why would I do it? Why would I take a cut in salary? Meaning mm, as yeah. an amateur, he was getting paid under the table more than he was than these pro guys were and so i think it lasted like into 1976 and then it was canceled yeah so. it's just hard to have like uh, especially when you're competing back then with baseball football basketball hockey it's just impossible but what i really liked about this runner from kenyan Chip Cho is that it was the first time he'd done an indoor race, I think. Right. Anyone at which is like, whoa. And then he ended up, I think, it, prior in 72, he won like a silver in the steeplechase, which to me is like, I believe that's the Olympic event where you literally have to touch the top mm -hmm. of the hurdle mm -hmm. and then you jump over it, which is to me. Right, <laughs> really. Right, right. jump over. Can you jump over water. Yeah, yeah I never and knew water. That until like, I read that article, I always heard the steeplechase and I yeah. thought, okay, you know. That's like what horses like yeah, would do and stuff right, like that. It's like right. make human beings do that. I just, I, mean, I just like Jip Show. He said uh, they talk about getting the money, you know, for the for the event. And he said, "Money doesn't make you run fast; it makes you run first. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good, good, good thinking there, Jip Show. Uh, next up, um, gasser of a race at King Richard's Place, and this was the Daytona Five Hundred. The biggest race in, in in NASCAR and maybe the biggest name in the history of NASCAR winning the, well, winning the Daytona 500, kind of, right, Bill? <laughs> yeah, because there was a gas crisis that year. Mark, you remember that, don't you? Yes, I do. I do remember that as well. It was the Daytona 400, 450 <laughs> because they had to cut it down because of gas costs. Isn't so that it's, amazing? Yeah. Well, it's funny because they had two. So they had the one here in the 70s, and then they had one in the late 70s. And I remember I was a student at UCLA, and you could only gas your car every It was even or odd days, depending on your license plate. So what you do, you get in the gas line, and it would be like 45 minutes an hour long. So I would study. i get my book out. That would be like my library. My car became my library as I waited mm -hmm. to gas my car. Think about it now. You just pull up into a gas station and do it back then you yeah, couldn't but i was looking back at that richard petty won he collected thirty six thousand dollars which at the time that's quite a salary but in 2015 joey logan 1.58 million hmm. it's amazing i'm sure what it is now it's just you know it's many the money it's is not sure. going down no no it's not no, <laughs> neither it's is not. the cost of living yeah. yeah the 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 fact that they shortened that race 
caused attendance to be a little lower, but they also think it was because, once again, of the gas crisis, mm -hmm. a lot of people come in their motorhomes, mm -hmm. and motorhomes get, you know, like five miles to the gallon. Um, so a lot of people didn't show up. But, yes, King uh, King Richard Petty, he won for the fifth time. He would end up winning two more uh, in his seven Daytona 500 wins, or actually six Daytona 500s and one Daytona 450 are still a record to this day and the most ever, um, and hence the name King Richard. Um, the Westminster Dog Show. Mm -hmm. Now, could argue, is that a sport? To the dogs it is. Yeah, and to the people that do it it is. Well, maybe not to the dogs, to the it's owners. It's been to the, the owners that do it it is. I, did, I went to one of those in um, Vegas. Those people are, they are... Um, Oh, they're competitive. Yes, they are. Yes. You think yes, of best in are. show. Right, yeah, right, right. I've seen the movie, but <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, the, 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 the story about this isn't necessarily who won, but is how a dog becomes a breed. Mm -hmm. And there were four new dogs that were given breeds or, or allowed to become breeds. And there's a long process that you have to go through in order for that to happen. But at the time, Billy, how many breeds were there and how many are there now? There were 300 dogs and 45 breeds back then. That's quite a few. Nowadays, there's 2,500 dogs and 300 breeds. Wow. That, so, I mean, right. and, and tw 20 years from now? You can just double that. I mean, it's amazing that so many things have they, that they've obviously been able to uh, breed a lot more dogs. And the American Kennel Club has this, like I said, they have this process where you have to start uh, what's called a stud book. Yeah. And then you have to start taking pictures of these dogs and of their, it, it goes three generations. You have to have their offspring and then their yeah. offspring. And then they basically at one day go, all right, that's a breed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so... Um, that year, the Ibizan Hound, the Pharaoh Hound, the Tibetan Spaniel, and the Staffordshire Bull Terrier were all welcome to the club. I just, I, yeah, I just, I just remember back a friend of mine many years ago tried to, um, he was trying to breed a dog. It was a bulldog and a Shih Tzu, you know. Just, a what Tzu? I'm sorry, that's from Dumb and Dumber. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bullshit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I watched a lot of fun movies. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, but I mean, USA Network used to do the Westminster Dog Show and to be one of their highest rating things. People went crazy. They did. But the story I remember the most was I was at CBS and I was working with Keith Overman, and um, they were in this soundbite from the lady whose dog won whatever division it was. And um, they asked, so how did you select this dog? And the lady just looked at the reporter and very calmly, and I'm, par I'm saying what she said, a word I don't condone, okay? But what she said, she said, I looked at the bitch and said, you're it. And <laughs> Keith- That's how I got out, married. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, Keith came out of that and just looked at the camera and said, isn't that what got Mike Tyson in trouble? <laughs> so I was like, on the yeah. I'm just kidding, Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> next not. up, um, uh, I, I like this next article. It was called uh, Bull Blades from Sea to Sea, um, and it was a diary of a week in hockey. Um, and it started in Oshawa, Ontario. Um, and a guy named Bill Lahid, who was going to be the next Bobby Orr. 
Lahead. Lahed? Yes. Thank you. Thank sure, you. Sure, sure. Um, because that's where Bobby Orr first made an impression um, uh, with the Oshawa Generals, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't happen for Lahed. He did. He did make it to the NHL. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. Um, look, I always number love one draft they, pick, a number nine in the draft by Red Wings. So you know, um, had a, had a good f- few good years with the Red Wings, um, and then and then fizzled out. You score but, one point in the NHL, and you're you know, yeah, you're good. right, absolutely. Um, Monday they went to the Bean Pot tourney oh, in I Boston. Love that. That's a huge thing uh, in in uh, in. Uh, Have in you Boston. been to one of those? I never went. No, okay. no. So, so it's Boston University. Go Terriers! Right? Yeah. Yeah. They have the most wins in the Bean Pot. Thirty-one. Boston College has twenty. Harvard has eleven, and Northeastern has eight wow. titles. But what I always remember about this is, everybody remember the classic movie Love Story? Allie McGraw, Ryan O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Love is never having to say you're sorry. Get your tissues out. Anyway. Like they're at Harvard. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, um, they're at Harvard, and he, I think the Ryan O'Neill character was playing hockey or whatever, and it's the Harvard hockey team and stuff like that. So that's what I always associate with it. I hear well, If you ever want to see the movie, you cry at the end. Yes. You're a sapster. <laughs> yeah. You watch it, you'll be crying at the end of that movie. Do we need to hold hands right now? I mm. love this quote from the <laughs> Harvard coach, Billy Cleary, who said in the locker room, I wouldn't walk across the seat, uh, the street to see a professional hockey game. Well, the night before, he walked across Causeway Street from ha- uh, Harvard and went to a professional hockey game. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's a liar, too. <laughs> uh, Harvard beat BC 11-6. The next week, they beat um, um, BU and, and won the Beanpot. Uh, the next day, they go to a squirt league game in Chicago. And Coach Mike Krolik brought his 7-year-old daughter, Melissa, to the rink. And his wife said, if she's going to be spending so much time at the rink, I want her playing. Well, there were no girls allowed. So Coach Mike decided, you know what we'll do? We'll get her dressed at home, and then we'll put a helmet on her, you know, as she gets out of the car, and she'll play, and we'll call her Mike. (laughs) And she did, and she played the whole year for the team, and the team had no idea Mm -hmm. until Mm -hmm. it came time for the banquet, and Mom made her wear a dress to the banquet. And she said... uh, she said, the boys never knew I was a girl, and they wouldn't know now if my mother hadn't made me wear a dress to the banquet last year. You should have seen the look on their faces. So love that little tidbit. Um, next, they tried to go to see a game out west and see a guy by the name of Andy Hebbenton, who uh, was 44 years old. In 22 years, he had played 1,652 games, only missing two, including a then-NHL record 630 consecutive games. And he played that game that they were going to, but the photographer and the writer for the story, their plane was canceled due to a snowstorm, and so they missed the game. So they missed one game, and Andy's missed two in 22 years. Instead, they got to Santa Rosa in time for the game on Thursday. And, Bill, do you remember what uh, awaited for them in Santa Rosa that day? I do not. What oh, it? that was the home of Charles Schultz. That's right. Uh, um, Charles Schultz, the famous um, creator of, of, of Peanuts, Peanut. um, had a um, $2 million rink called the Snoopy Place. Mm-hmm. And Schultz was from Minnesota and loved hockey and played into his 50s. In fact, he played on a 40 and over team in the Senior Olympic Tournament and took a beating. But the thing I thought was funny, I was like, we know, I, I remember Charlie Brown playing football. Right. Right. The, mm-hmm. the classic. And not being Lucy, able to kick the right? ball. Lucy. Baseball, he was a horrible pitcher. Right. Yeah. 
I don't remember him lacing up the skates. Do you guys remember? Uh, maybe him? a Christmas you know, episode, right? but no, I don't no. remember. So anyway, um, then I, they went. Uh, I was going to say about Schultz. Yeah. He had to throw parents out of the game. One parent ref, came up and right? said, yeah. yeah, he was a ref. In the and he said, he said, one of the parents called him a creep. And so he threw her out of the game. He said, that's way too personal. So he took, he took garbage on the ice from the players, got beat up, and from the fans when he was a ref. That's Charles Schultz, man. Right. I think he said something to the effect of, you're a creep, Schultz. And he said, if he yes. had called me a ref, I'd be okay. Yeah, that's right. But he called me Schultz, Schultz, and that's, yeah, too, that's personal. too personal. Yeah. Yep. From there, they flew to Minnesota. And saw a two-time state champion Hibbing High School uh, play their game. It ended in a tie. And from there, they go to Sa uh, to Jonestown, Pennsylvania. And, um, and they're in a dressing room. And there's a picture of Bobby Orr. And the GM of the Binghamton Broomduster says, you know, that kid has some good moves. He'd get us into the playoffs for sure. That GM was Ron Orr, Bobby's... Older brother by a year. And I love this, right? He's the GM of a minor league hockey team. So the game ends in a 4-4 tie, which was a good win or a good tie for them. They needed that to get into the playoffs or something like that. He's the GM, mind you. After the game, what does he do? He calls three TV stations, uh, two radio stations, two newspapers, all to let them know. He's also like their PR guy. He's letting them know <laughs> how the game went. You know, those those smaller teams, even now, those people do a little bit of everything. And he said the one job he still had to do now is he goes, I have to buy the beer for the six-hour bus ride back That's home. Right. <laughs> so um, let's see. We have uh, anything from the, the people section Um you guys, Billy, no, uh, Mark, I thought no. you had something in the people. Uh, I know there was leads? something was on the leads coach. There was something on uh, boat building, uh, and uh, I decided yeah. uh, Americans yeah. build boats real well. That's and, all and, I got. And, and ski styles, nice. No, the ski styles, yeah, that, that's the skiing for hot no. doggers. They they wear bright clothes and do fun tricks. Which what does it seem like they do? What is it nowadays? It's called the X Games. There you go. That's right. You know, so it was precursor to the X Games. Absolutely. And then they had the soccer article. Yeah, the leads. Lead. Yeah. So the lead soccer. Go for it, Mark. Well, I mean, this guy was like the dominant coach back then. You know, Leeds was a powerhouse. You know, you now you think of, you know, Arsenal, Man U, mm. Man City, you and know, Don Chelsea. You know, yeah. Leeds, Leeds. I mean, they they had a at the time of the article twenty eight games without a loss, and I ended up at twenty nine. I think the streak, which was just uh, he was the head coach Don Revy from sixty one to seventy four. So I think that was his last oh, year. That was when his they last game. year. Yeah. But they were just just a dominant, dominant, you know, English football league team. He also changed their name. He changed. They used to be the Peacocks. He changed them to Whites. And well, they're he still wasn't known a as fan. the Whites nowadays. He, he wasn't a fan of NBC. Is that Evidently it? not. Okay. Evidently, right. ding ding ding. So, um, the ABA, one of the better teams in the NBA, was the Utah Stars. They mm -hmm. won the championship in 1971. Had a good team. Ron Boone was on that team. Ron mm -hmm. Boone was known for, as the yeah. Iron Man of basketball. I think he set the record for most games yep. played consecutively. Mm -hmm. um, but really, the one thing they did, they, they had success for four or five years in a row. Really good team. But they paved the way for the New Orleans Jazz right. to relocate and you know become the Utah, Utah Jazz, yeah. which... Once again, is is if anyone wants to know how come the Utah team is called the Jazz, yeah. there's your answer. They came they came from New Orleans. Well, but also the Utah Stars didn't start in Utah. You know where they came from? Tell me, Mark. They came from Los Angeles. It was the Los Angeles Stars. 
Which makes perfect sense. Now that makes sense. So Utah just doesn't, Utah takes the stars from LA, the jazz from New Orleans. Wouldn't they want, you know, like, you know, the tabernacles or something? Right. Come on, the history of LA ABA teams. You had the Anaheim Amigos, I think, the first year in the league. That one, bye bye. LA Stars, which I think Channel 11, I think, might have done a few of their games. And then uh, they went to Utah. And then you had the Conquistadors. The San Diego Conquistadors, coached by Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah. I could get those games on the radio. Uh, the final um, article in the uh, in the magazine is written by one of my favorite writers ever, Frank DeFord, um, and it's the rights and wrongs of spring. I'm not going to get too much into it. It's it's basically about how the Northerners in in the East Coast really looked forward to spring training and the truck day. Still do because it was you know basically meaning spring is coming. Thank God, and this this white stuff that's on the ground will will finally be over. But I thought it was great. Uh, you know, he's, he, he wrote that all the, the spring training cliches. I, the three of us have covered spring training for 25-plus mm-hmm. years now. Um, we go down to Arizona almost every – not almost every year, every year, and, and have had some great time covering spring training baseball. And, you know, you have that guy, that pitcher that goes two and a third innings and gives up seven runs, and then you go and have to get post game from this guy. And, <laughs> and Bill, what's his answer? You know, what does he say after giving up seven and two and a third innings? You know, I was just working on stuff today. Yeah. Everything's looking good. I felt good out there. Uh, wasn't making my pitches. Just, uh, you know, I'll come back. I'll come back next week, and um, I'll be ready to do it again. Not uh, too concerned right not now with results. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Just yeah. trying to get my work in, get yeah. stretched out. Yeah. You know, I was working. I got my ass kicked. Yeah, That's what yeah, I was working yeah. on. Yeah, I right. can do it. Whatever Javier Vasquez did that he gave up seven, eight runs one one time. I came and interviewed him, and he goes, he goes. I said, we said, oh, you got pretty hard. Hit pretty hard. He goes, I didn't get hit hard at all. I said, well, it was like you know, one of the writers goes, well, it was seven seven runs, eleven hits. He goes, they didn't hit me hard at all. I don't even know what happened out there. Like, okay, well, <laughs> see, even better. Yeah. So getting posts from those guys. Um, not always the best, but I loved the bulletins in the papers would announce while most of you guys and gals will be plowing through the snow this morning, the advance guard of the Red Sox will be shoving off from the South Station aboard the Orange Blossom Special bound for Sarasota and the 1938 training season. It wow. would, there, you got to remember, there was no NBA back then. Yep. The NHL was, you know, doing well, but, but not. I mean, baseball was king. Yep. So yeah. the thought of baseball was bigger than basketball and hockey. It's just the, the, just the, op- the world. Just the, football, just the possibility yeah. um, that they would. And, and, you know, one thing that players, you know, players would literally go down there to get in baseball shape because yes, back would. then they didn't get these huge salaries. They had jobs. They had jobs. Yeah. They couldn't be working. And so they would go down there. They'd get – they didn't get their salaries. I think this is still true now. Until the season mm-hmm. started, spring training they don't get paid, and they would get paid a sixty-two dollars a week right. per diem. Mm. So I like the one that we said about Hal McRae. Hal McRae went down there; he didn't have a contract, so he sat in the stands, and they negotiated the contract with him. He had no agent, so he was same with Dick Drago. We're all sitting in the stands, not having a contract. They finally figured out what to sign him for. Got to go play. That would never happen nowadays. Right. Never. Something similar to that. I don't know if it was in this article, but Dom DiMaggio was watching Bobby Doerr, I think, take batting practice. And he was sitting there and he wasn't supposed to be there yet. And he kept watching. He kept hearing the crack of the bat and stuff. And he finally, he's sitting next to his wife in the stands and he goes, I'm going to go take some swings. And so he yeah. reported to camp. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, finally, um, faces in the crowd. Ron Marriott, I guess, the trampoline champ, U.S. trampoline champ. And it, it, he ended up uh, winning a bronze at the 84 Olympics in springboard diving, which makes sense because you think about it, your trampoline, you're bouncing up and down, and the springboard, you're bouncing up. It gives, it has, it gives a lot. It's not a platform mm-hmm. dive, which is solid. So tra- if you want to be a really good springboard driver, I guess start working on the trampoline. Who knew? Yeah, I was going to mention uh, Gordy Howe had four goals in three games just so we can promo. Yeah. We're having Chuck Caton on. Chuck yeah. Caton was the Hartford Whalers announcer back in 79-80. Gordy Howe's last season. He played all 80 games that year. I mean, that, and he was 51 wow. in that year when, when Caton yeah. announced him. Gordy Howe will be the on the cover, yeah. I think, of the March 10th or 11th yeah. Yeah. issue of the 1974 issue of Sports Illustrated, and we'll have Chuck on to talk yeah. about about his time with the 51-year-old Gordie Howe. Yeah, it's just wow. Gordie Howe and Tom Brady are just 50 years from now will just be looked on as not just great, amazing athletes at what they did, but the age they played to. Yeah. I mean, it's... It freaks is. of nature. I just was going to mention in the letters to the editor that um, we had a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the honeypot shots. Mm. And that was a guy named Andy Sedaris, whose job at uh, ABC was to go through the crowds and get honey shots of the good girls, mm-hmm. uh, good-looking girls in the stands. And Andy um, wasn't shy about saying where the girls were pretty and where they were not pretty. And he <laughs> went after a few schools pretty hard, including Stanford. Um, one guy wrote in, by the name of Ed Snate and said, man does not live by honey alone. We at Stanford feel that a belief in human equality with respect to social, political, and economic rights should be a more highly regarded standard of beauty than a transient pretty smile or other commonly preferred superficial characteristics. And I can say with certainty, nobody likes Ed Snate. Uh, no. <laughs> nope. Listen, he and Harry Potter. <laughs> so... Um, so there you have it, guys. Um, I mean, there's certain issues where there's a whole lot of different things in it and it all holds up. And then there's other issues where the, the guest we have just supersedes everything else. And like you said, Bill, and you're never going to know who that is because of all the guests we've had, um, the two that I honestly could say I I had never heard of Mm -hmm. are Bob Thomas Mm -hmm. and Gerald Willett. And man, were they both exceptional. Um, so thank you to Gerald for coming on today. Uh, any, any parting thoughts? I'm, I'm just saying, I, when, when, when Gerald was talking, I just, you were 100% right. My mouth was agape. I just thought, yeah. thinking, this is, Mark had it right, it's a movie. Uh, that I, doesn't, I, that's a, I mean, he's telling stories about going down 32,000 feet in a plane, being electrocuted, having an army on a basketball court that and then you lose your eye or get damaged your eye playing bill playing uh badminton badminton unbelievable and, and and this is why i don't do odd jobs around the house <laughs> so, very good Mark. nice it's i a have a perfect thing. excuse it's, it's... next time i ask hey can you go change that light bulb i'll say no because i remember when gerald right. tried to do it this yeah happened. yeah okay yeah no nice. more taking trash out for me no <laughs> hey next week um uh, uh a classic cover with Jimmy Connors and Chris Everett on the cover. Um, Curry Kirkpatrick wrote that article 50 years ago. We'll talk with him about what it was like to cover two of the game's top players who were dating at the time. Mm. 
unbelievable time in tennis. So until next week, for Bill, for Mark, for Jeremy, our technician, I'm Scott Johnston signing off for Past Our Prime. See ya. See ya.